welcome to the Relationship Recovery Podcast, hosted by Jessica Knight, a certified life coach who specializes in narcissistic and emotional abuse. This podcast is intended to help you identify manipulative and abusive behavior, set boundaries with yourself and others, and heal the relationship with yourself so you can learn to love in a healthy way. Hello, thank you for being here. Today I have a very special episode with Carrie Kerr McAvoy, a psychologist and writer who is an expert on cultivating healthy relationships, deconstructing narcissism, and understanding various other mental health-related issues. You may have seen her on TikTok or Instagram or even YouTube, where she posts tons of content on understanding and healing from narcissistic abuse. We talk about her memoir in this episode, but you can also find her memoir online on Amazon. It's called Love You More, The Harrowing Tale of Lies, Sex Addiction, and Double Cross, which gives you an uncensored glimpse into the dynamics of narcissistic abuse. Dr. McAvoy delivered amazing episode today. Before we got on the call, she said, the questions you have really go really deep. And I said, I know, but I knew that she was the perfect person to talk to about this. Not only does she have a personal story that is heartbreaking and terrifying, but she also, she is a highly trained psychologist and she talks about a lot of research on this podcast a lot of various sources of information, books, but also the ins and outs and the chaos of narcissistic abuse. I really enjoyed speaking with Carrie, and I know that you are going to gain so much from this episode. All of Carrie's links will be in the podcast show notes. And if you have any questions or if you want to reach out to her directly, you can find our contact information in there too. Carrie, thank you so much for being here today. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy. I'm a licensed psychologist with over 20 years of counseling experience. I closed my practice in 2015 when my first husband passed away. And then I ended up in a second marriage and that ended about three years ago. And since then, I've been creating content. I do, I write a lot or I have been writing a lot. Who did blog for a while. And then I also wrote a book called Love You More, which describes what happened in that last marriage. And these days I'm primarily on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, just presenting content about narcissistic abuse, but also just getting to know people and hearing their stories and trying to heal together as a community. When would you say that second marriage was like the doorway that opened you up to narcissistic abuse? It made me aware of it. I would say it got me thinking about the whole topic as a whole. Unfortunately, abuse has been a legacy of my story, of my history, but narcissistic abuse, yes. And I kind of back-ended into it. When I first got out of the relationship, I knew he was a narcissist. That was something we actually joked about in the context of the marriage, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know that there was a specific type of abuse and that that was what I was experiencing actually was what a lot of people are experiencing, that this is more universal than just me. I thought that what I had gone through was really wild and unique to us. But then when I started to meet other people and hear their stories, I was shocked by how prevalent this is. And and almost feels like there's a playbook sometimes. Mm -hmm. What we go through is so similar, which is really mind boggling to Mm me. I completely agree with that. I think once I realized that I I was in a narcissistic relationship and then I was like Googling, it was like 
everything says the exact same thing because it's exactly the same. You know, like a lot of the things follow this. And so I was on your website a few days ago looking through what you have and what you offer in your blog and your podcast. And I noticed that you have a quiz to identify if you're in a toxic or dangerous relationship. And so I think a lot of us don't know that we're in one until we start to think like, okay, some of these things aren't okay, but what are some of those common signs of the toxicity and dangerous relationship that you might see, that someone might see? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I now have added two more surveys. Yeah, one is, are you taking too much emotional responsibility for the relationship as another survey? And is your partner too hot-tempered? Yeah. So people are kind of curious about that whole realm of how to identify toxicity or difficulty. So what is a toxic relationship? And I kind of, I say that because for me, when we say narcissist, we're also then excluding anyone who has narcissistic traits. We're excluding everybody who's more psychopathic traits, but there's a whole range of continuum of people who have struggled with having intimacy and struggle showing up and being in a committed relationship. So one way to see that is, When there's constant chaos and drama, it feels like you're moving from crisis to crisis, that you feel like everything going wrong is your fault. It's being made out that when you bring up an issue that there's a problem. I would say when you feel like you can't be yourself and show up as yourself, you feel like you're walking on eggshells or the relationship is really like there's loaded topics that you have to be super careful about. Those are some of the things I would look out for. And when we can use words like, is there gaslighting? But people who are being gaslit often don't know they're being gaslit. Right, right. So I actually remember that. Like, I remember feeling like I didn't know I was being gaslit for a long time and I would just get defensive. Yeah. I would just like amp up that defensive whatever, like, because I just felt like, no, you're wrong. You're not seeing it. Right. It was actually freeing to realize I was being gaslit because then I was like, I don't have to defend myself. Right. Obviously, this brings in like a whole new cohort of emotions and feelings and tools and things. And when you don't know you're being gaslit, I think you just constantly get into that defensive game. Right. It's really hard for us. When we're in relationship, we're like all in and our focus is in the moment on what's happening and on being understood. We want the person, at least those of us who are more collaborative and how we see the world, I sort of see there's two groups of people. There's the competitive individuals and there's those collaborative individuals. So most of us are collaborative. Most of us want to get along. We Most of us believe people are good and well-intended and that we can work as a team. That's how I would define a collaborative individual. And these are just things I've made up, my own terminology. This isn't based on research anywhere. But when we're in it, when we're more of a collaborative mindset and we get into a conflict with somebody who's making us the problem and kind of diverting the issue off the topic into the discussion, it's crazy making and it, you feel defensive. That's why you react defensively, because you also feel misunderstood and not seen. So we just tend to work harder trying to make it better without realizing that this is actually a very sophisticated strategy to avoid responsibility on the other person's part. Yeah, yeah. And what would you say takes a relationship from being toxic to being abusive? What is a core difference there? To me, I see them as the same. Mm -hmm. I'm not for sure I see it as a difference. I do think there's a difference between abusive and narcissistically abusive. Yeah. So let's go there. And I think that's actually an important point because I think a lot of us are more comfortable with the word toxic, but we're less comfortable with abuse. Yeah. We're less comfortable saying I'm being abused and it's more comfortable to say this is toxic, but I think I agree with you there too, that it's actually the same. You know? Right. I'd love to stop and define it. I think yeah. because toxic to me is also abusive, 
But toxic to me is whenever you feel you can't show up safely as yourself and you have to then you feel like you have to defend or like you don't exist or you don't count or your needs aren't as important or you don't feel safe. When you start to feel less secure, less yourself and like you can't be freely yourself, to me, that's toxic. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's abusive. Yeah. And so you just mentioned that you think narcissistic abuse differs from other types of abuse. So let's define that because I think people listening to this might start to see themselves in that pattern. Yes. So the best definition I have found is on Psych Central and Dr. Kristen Milstead is the one who postulated the definition. And she said there are five aspects to it. And I think she perfectly described it. She wrote the book, Why Can't I Just Leave? In fact, I was interviewed her in August. So I have a live, it was a live webinar interview at the time. But if anyone's interested in the replay, the replay is available. She said it's this, it's when someone gets into a relationship for deceptive reasons in order to acquire an asset from the other person, whether it is their attention, time, their love, sex, money, or place to live something. They get into a relationship for something, but they present it that they're in the relationship for the relationship, but it's actually for something. But they do it in a way they act like their best interest is the relationship instead of getting the asset. So there's this deceptive piece. And they present themselves to the world that it's the same. Yes, I love this person. I'm in, I'm in this relationship because I want to be in this relationship. So the world around them also participates in a sense of it buys into their the what's called a mask of sanity, buys into that they're in this for good reasons, while they're really actually doing it for the purpose of getting that asset, which makes it really hard to identify and to see because of the deception. Do you think that the narcissist is aware that they're going to the relationship wanting a specific aspect? Or do you think that they actually think that that's what love is or that's what a relationship is? I think there's many different types of people. Some don't know. I mean, I remember years ago, I had a client come in and say to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. I fall in love with these people and then love just fades away. And then before I know it, I'm not, I don't feel anything for the person that I leave. And to me, that person was sort of a love addict. She was going into it for infatuation. Mm-hmm. And then when the infatuation stage died out, she may not have realized she was love bombing the other individual and that she was getting them to fall in love with her too. But when she then got bored or disinterested, she'd move on. She didn't realize that she was doing that. She knew something was wrong, but she didn't realize the way she was approaching it was wrong. So I do think that there's people who just are so needy, emotionally fragile, that they aren't like cognizant that I want this person to admire me. Yeah. And here's the other problem is there was a friend of mine who did this research project on, it was a dissertation on why people have children. I don't know if you ever asked yourself, why do you have kids? She found that every reason we give is not altruistic, it's selfish. Mm. A lot of the reasons we get into relationships are not altruistic, they're selfish, they're self-motivated. So to say, do they know intentionally that they're getting in it for, for the gains? Well, we all do. I guess that's my point. We all do. But I think some of them are not aware that there's a predatory piece to it. Yeah. That it's not just, yeah, I want to be loved and I hate to be alone. And this person makes me feel good, which is what a lot of us would say. But there is a more of entitlement, privilege, and an inability to really appreciate and see the other person as an individual separate person and respect that. So I think there's that group. But then I do think there are groups of people who go into it consciously in a predatory manner. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think for me and my relationship, it was almost as if like when I stopped being able to show up the exact way that he wanted me to, that's when the abuse and the control and like the power kicked up because it was like, no, I want this version of you that I had during this honeymoon phase when I wasn't treating you like shit, but I'm treating you like shit now and I'm devaluing your needs and I'm gaslighting you like crazy. But why are you not showing up that way? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it's like he wasn't conscious of the fact that he was like using me for various things. And I think one of the things were financial. The other one was like sexual, but it was that I wasn't showing up. I wasn't the person he wanted me to be anymore. And there was no way of that person coming back either. Right. In the dynamic that I was in. Right, right. Yeah. And that's often true, too, is that they don't realize that whether or not it's intentional or not, their impulsiveness, their lack of good judgment, their egocentricity to the point of being betraying changes the other partner and changes the other partner's behavior and investment in the relationship, that they have changed the relationship. You disappeared on him because he wounded you. Now you're showing up differently. Mm-hmm. But you're right. They end up like, well, you're not the same. And this is not as good as it used to be. Like, yes, but you did the damage. I'm just reacting. But you're yeah. right. And then that often kicks in the devaluation stage, the next stage. Yeah. Now, yeah. my relationship was a con. Okay. Can you say it more? was? Yeah. Well, he came into it hunting for someone purposefully. And I didn't realize he was giving me clues that he had a profile he was looking for. That he actually, I mean, at the end of the book, I share that he had a partnership with another person. And I believe, I don't have proof, but my suspicion is they set me up. Okay. Was it like financial gain? Yeah, Yeah, it was. Yep. He said in the first day he was looking for a widow and I was widowed. And I took it as, oh, he's doing research on what it means to be a widow. I mean, I assumed good reasons that he was, I didn't realize that he had just actually confessed that there was a predatory purpose to the relationship. There were other clues in that first day. I mean, it was over two days. We met up for the date and then he went back to the hotel for the night. And the next day I met him back up to take him to the airport to say goodbye. And in that second meeting, he then indicated that he was surprised he felt sexual attraction for me. I should have like, you know, that's like, you don't say that to some. Why would you go out with me if you didn't think you were interested in me? I mean, exactly. Then get into the relationships is because they find a person attractive. So he's already saying to me, Well, I was looking for a widow and I'm surprised I find you attractive. But I, again, you know, we don't hear what we're not ready to hear. So I didn't see that as warning, a big warning. Yeah. Yeah. This is so much less than that. On my first date with my ex boyfriend, who was a very emotionally abusive narcissist, said, we met like in out in the world, which after COVID was like so rare. And we got, we had a few drinks and then he asked me what I do. And I said, you know, I'm a life coach. I work with, and he goes, yeah, like I'd have never been to therapy. I just push everything down and eventually it goes away. And I remember like being like, oh, okay. And then like moving on, you know, like back to that conversation that wasn't this, that we were just talking about. And like, but like, it's like, no, it doesn't go away. You lash out on everybody in your life. Like your everyone that's safe, right? Me, your parents, your siblings, your best friend, nobody else, nobody in the outside world, but these people get it. And we all know how bad it is. But for you, you just push it down. It goes away. You know? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. They often confess and we don't realize they're confessing. We hear that. And again, because we're more collaborative, we just sort of take it as whether it brings us sympathy or whatever. It evokes an emotional reaction. And we don't realize that We've actually heard powerful, informative, you know, something that's informative. We don't realize that. 
Yeah. And so how long did it take to kind of like realize that that was happening in your story, that it was purposeful? Till after it's over? Yeah. I didn't. So that brings me to the interesting research that Sandra Brown's done. I don't know if you're familiar with her and her work, but she uh, did this huge Purdue University study with 600 pathological love relationships in 2014 mostly women in relationship with men. And that's why it's gender specific, not because it's gender specific, but because her sample size was gender specific. So Mm -hmm. she found that the assumption was, and it has been for like 40 plus years, that victims who get into abusive relationships are flawed people, that there's something needy or people pleasing or something about insecurity, something, maybe they had a traumatic past. There's something about their history that makes them vulnerable to predatory behavior. In fact, there's a really great book. I highly recommend it in addition to Sandra Brown's work, but it's by Don Hennessy called How He Gets Under Her Head. Mm-hmm. Don Hennessy is a law enforcement, Irish law enforcement man who's worked with domestic violence victims for many, many years. And he says the same thing. His task force, again, was looking at what was going wrong with victims, that they got into these toxic relationships How could they help them so that they were stronger and picked better? What both studies, what both groups found was that the common denominator wasn't the victim's profile. It was the fact they had met a predator. In fact, Sandra L. Brown gave the group an ACE, which is Assessment of Childhood Trauma, kind of how much past trauma you have. She took a detailed family history, and then she also gave them a big five personality inventory test. What came out was the majority, 63%, I believe, 62, 63% scored high on two traits on the personality inventory. That was the commonality. They were agreeable people, meaning open, trusting, loyal. You know, they show up, they believe in the goodness of other people. They're open to relationships. They're great team members, everything you'd want. See, the opposite of agreeableness is antagonistic. That means they're not conflictual. That means they try to work through things. They've got good communication styles. They've scored high in agreeableness and they scored high in the second one called conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is people who have an internal moral code. They are conscientious. They apologize. They have a sense of remorse and responsibility and guilt. They take responsibility for what they do. So these traits, these things that you would want in a job candidate are the things that certain people are looking for in a relationship. It actually... In fact, Down Hennessy says that men, again, he was looking more at men, men were profiling women and testing them for these qualities because that meant that they were going to be easier to manipulate in the relationship emotionally. So it wasn't that the women were codependent or people-pleasing or insecure. And in fact, what they found, this was what Sandra Brown found, is that when you looked at them post-relationship, they just looked shaky. The women looked shaky and secure, but if you'd met them pre-morbid before the relationship, they weren't. They had done well. They had been successful. And that process, what happened in the abuse, eroded their self-confidence to such a point that they presented more codependent and insecure after the abuse. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes complete sense in terms of when I think about my clients and I think about my own story. It's like at times... I would have friends say to me, like, you used to not be like this. You weren't so anxious. You weren't so codependent. You weren't all these things. And I was like, I know. I don't know who that other person is anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in healing it, like, 
I mean, it all came back, like all the parts of me that I, you know, like after no contact and a year of healing and intensive work, I do feel more like me. I actually feel more me than the other me was before. But I think it like it almost made me codependent. You know, even my family would say that they were like, we don't know who this person is anymore. Yeah. They said that after my marriage, too. Like, who are you? Yeah. Right. I felt like it shut me down. I felt ghost-like. Mm-hmm. Like at times in the book, I describe it like a paper doll. When I grew up, one of the things you could get was these books. Instead of coloring books, you could get a book with you had a punch out paper doll. And then she also came out with punch out clothes and you could yeah. dress her up and stuff, you, you know, fold the little flaps. Yeah, yeah tabs, yeah. tabs. And you put the tabs down and, and then we'd pretend. And I felt like that's what I'd become. I felt like I'd become a big life-size paper doll that you were, I was just dressing and I was smiling. You're putting stuff on me, but that I was dead, that I was really not there. I was just moving through, you know, someone was moving me through the day. I, yeah, I would even struggle with selective mutism where I literally couldn't speak. I, something would come up and I'd get so frightened and so frozen that I felt so unsafe that I would be unable to protect myself, speak up or advocate for myself. And here I'm a psychologist who'd spent you know, I had a successful practice and had to confront people in the office. And I mean, I dealt with difficult clients and here I can't even represent myself in my own personal life. It was paralyzing. I have never felt more overwhelmed, more shut down than I did in that relationship. Yeah. And here we're talking about somebody who never even called me a bad name, you know, but yet he had ways of intimidating, of swinging things around, of putting me on the spot, making me feel really stupid and ashamed or setting things up that would go badly for me. And I would look, you know, I would be devastated and humiliated by the experience. You know, he would trick me into something. And then it would, like, we had a doctor's appointment. It was supposed to be a, talking about our physical health, because we discovered he had a condition that put me at risk. And so we wanted to talk about safety. And instead, it became about my weight and diet. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and so, you know, because he was in the office, and he was asking the questions. And so next thing I know, it's over here on another topic that's humiliating me. And we're stead- we should have been talking about this that was going to keep me safe. So it's stuff like that that happened that just was horrible. Yeah, I think one of the questions I had for you were tactics that narcissists use to maintain power and control. And I think you're touching on that right now of like this. I mean, that's obviously emotionally abusive, but that's also I think it's I mean, I think a lot of that's gaslighting, right? Because I'm sure in that doctor appointment, you're like, wait, how did we get over here? Like, is this more important than the issue at hand? Like, we're here for this. And now we're talking about this. Right. It might actually be helpful to hear it from your story because it's like it actually happened. But what are some of the ways that your abuser tried to control you and maintain that power? Right. Well, it happens really subtly. So let's start with love bombing because that's where they start. They start with love bombing and love bombing is actually fascinating when you dissect it. And the best definition I heard of that, again, came from Kristen Milstage. So when they meet you, they begin to mimic, mirror and parrot you. So you don't really meet who you think you met actually an imitation of yourself. They listen to you and they find ways in order to create a story that's similar to you to make you feel like you guys had shared past. Like you said, I went to certain certain college or school. They'll say, well, I did too. Maybe they just walked across that campus at some point, but they'll, they'll exaggerate it and make it. So in your mind's eye, you see them in that past with you, mm-hmm. even though they never may have done. They'll, they'll say that they like the same kind of music or they watch the same kind of shows or they're very good at interviewing you and then saying they have similarities with you. Then the next thing they do is they'll do something that makes you feel extra special. Like 
you're the first person that really has ever, ever understood me. I have never met someone who's more compatible with me. I think I've met my soulmate or I have never felt like this. They'll say something that makes you feel extra special and unique. That's really appeals to your self-esteem. And then they'll start to future fake, which they'll talk about doing things with you in the future that they think would be really fun that they've already kind of like are picking up or special to you. I had one person tell me on a date that they thought it would be cool to go find like a place where out without light, no, you know, all the noise of light so we could see the stars. I mean, how sweet is that to go stargazing? That's a great idea. But it's not real. They'll talk about these ideas as if they're real and paint this picture. So what they've essentially done is they've created a shared past by putting inserting themselves into your past. They, they make you feel extra special in the present that you have this world that you've never had with anybody else, a shared experience you've never had. And then they describe a future with you that's going to be extra special. So they essentially create this past, present and future with you. So you feel like you have met the most amazing person. And on top of it, they're using things that we've learned are very effective in advertisement, but also cult leaders have found it very effective in creating kind of a hypnotic mind state, which is they do too much eye gazing with eye contact is very intense. Mm -hmm. They'll actually mirror and mimic your body position. We found that with therapy. That's a fast way to develop rapport is to sit like a client, you know, take their body position maybe reach out and touch them at some point. Like when they walk in, you know, put your hand on their arm. They'll do all of that to make contact. Those are all effective selling strategies. And then of course, the focus on you is like incredible. We'll ask you a lot of great questions, be very, very interested in you, partly because they're creating a backstory off of what you say, but also it's just a way to really increase suggestibility and to increase your trust. So you meet somebody you think is too good to be true. You've never felt like this before. And how can you not fall madly for that really, really fast? And that happened in my situation. I've never even heard of love bombing before I experienced it. My first husband <laughs> did not love bomb me. You know, when I first met him, I didn't even like him. He didn't even make a good first impression on me. <laughs> Yeah, he has a good impression now. So exactly, I had to grow on me. But when I met this second guy, I was, I remember that afternoon, I thought to myself, I had this list of qualities. I literally thought, check, check, check. I never, I had never met somebody who checked so many of my boxes so fast. It was really eerie. So you get into the relationship and in the first part's wonderful. And oh, they cement it. I forgot to mention this cement it with rapid intimacy, sexual intimacy. And they kind of use your hormones and chemistry against you by creating a really sense of intimacy and connection. Okay, so it's happening. But then usually what happens is they start to be less available. They'll start to do something that you feel is withdrawn. And it's really what it's called is intermittent reinforcement, radar reinforcement. Yeah. Uh, Las Vegas uses this on us when we gamble. It's when you never know when the payout's going to be. And the payout can be really big or it might be small, but you keep hoping that the next time you feed the quarter into the slot machine, the payout's going to be massive. Yeah. Teal Swarm has a really good video on this, actually. It's yeah. about 40 minutes long, but it's really helpful. Yep. Yep. So they do that. Like you have this fantastic connection spontaneously, unpredictably. And then you'll think, oh, we're going to like build on this. And then suddenly they're hard to reach or you'll text and they won't be there for hours. And if you bring it up to them, they'll pitch it back to you and say that you're just want too much or there's a problem. They'll make you scared about the relationship. So what they're you're already doing for too much or too clingy. Yep, you're, yep. Why do you need an instant response? I'm working. Yep. Don't you understand? Yep. Yep. 
And what they're doing is they're establishing that you're emotionally responsible for the relationship. So they're transferring control. They're showing that they have control by transferring the emotional well-being of the relationship to you and your ability to sort of figure out what the hidden rules are and keep them happy. So they're starting to establish that, setting the ground rules. Oh, and I also forgot, they'll tell you a sob story. That's another early sign. And they do that in order to do two things. One is it's to appeal to your sympathy so that you feel like connected and sorry for them. It also increases your likely to tell them intimate things that they can later use against you, but it also establishes their backstory for their bad behavior. Yeah. But whenever they do something wrong and they will say, well, you know, I had that bad childhood or, you know, how so-and-so betrayed me or, you know, what my other partner had done to me at some point. So it sort of establishes it. And, and it does this too. It's called typecasting. They establishes rules of how you're not to be. So if they tell you about what a past partner did, the unspoken rule is, and you're not to be like that person. Don't do that. Yeah. Right? I feel yeah. Like you just set off like a synapse in my brain. <laughs> I've seen this with my clients, but this is actually extremely true for what happened for me too, is that I got this sob story of this guy that grew up in the Midwest, like his mom was so overbearing and his brother was so perfect, like, you know, was so good looking and so good at everything. And he was like, not the ugly duckling, but like the one behind him. He didn't look like his brother. He didn't have everything so easy. He didn't get into the same college on the first try. I took the second try. And it was always like, and my mom was breathing down my throat, but like, And she probably was, you know, but also she probably was doing it from a place of like caring and protection. Like she always wanted her kids to play at the house, things like that. But he felt smothered. And so at first it was like, oh, my God, you're so caring and kind. And like, I'm a mom, like I'm a single mom. So like that's kind of like my nature is to be like kinder and caring and like think about things ahead. I have to do that all day, you know? And so when I would do that in the relationship at the beginning, he was like, this is like, I love how you're so thoughtful and you're always thinking, like, I appreciate that you want to make the next plan. And then it turned into, you remind me of my mom. Ooh, Don't be like that, you know? And it's like, he loves his mom, you know? And I know that, but it's like, don't be like my mom. You're smothering me. This is what I felt in childhood. And I'm like, well, then go to therapy and work on it because like I have a past too. And an interview that I heard from, I think this was you. So do correct me if I'm wrong, but I really do think it was an interview that I listened to that was yours within the last few weeks of, you said that like, in some of the research, it it used to proclaim that people become a narcissist based on history of like some sort of abuse or neglect or something like that. But that's changing now because there's plenty of people that have gone through, like I grew up in an abusive home emotionally and physically and verbally, and I'm not a narcissist. But instead, I end up on the other side of the spectrum of attracting people because I think that's normalized behavior, you know, whereas I loved hearing that because for a long time, I was like, that's not an excuse for somebody to treat other people this way. Like, that's not a reason. Like, I can't go into my boyfriend now and be like, fuck you, you're an asshole. Oh, sorry, I was abused as a kid. It's like, no, I'm in my late 30s, you know, and I need to be responsible for my adulthood. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I did say that. So I, I got to recently hear Dr. Gregory Lester. He he is a uh, large, he's sort of like a large trainer for clinicians, does a lot of mm-hmm. ongoing continuing education for clinicians. So he has a he has a webinar out there for six hours for, for psychologists and social workers. And he talks about the development of personality disorders because that's one of the big groups he works with. He was also part of the DSM-5 personality com- disorder committee when they're reevaluating what goes into the DSM-5 on personality disorders. So he was part of that thinking that, that, that group think that 
And he said, and he had backed up with research, is that it, that narcissism and all personality disorders are biosocial problem, meaning that there is a genetic component that gets activated through some something, some emotional, environmental, or familial trigger helps set it in motion, and that it's a personality deficit. They have hardwiring deficits that they're actually their neurology looks different than the average person's brain. It yeah. functions differently, which is fascinating. So yeah, you're right. It's easy because they use these sob stories as sort of justification. And what mine said to me was we found out it was actually a year in. I didn't know for the first 11 months that he had a significant porn problem. Mm-hmm. That I mean, he did kind of tell me he had one in the past but he didn't tell me it was ongoing. It was, he was prolifically involved with it. And he also didn't tell me that he was, when he was dating me, I think he, I counted, he was seeing at least seven other women when he was dating and engaged to me. And he never told me that this was not a monogamous relationship on his side at all. Did he act like you should have known that? No, uh -uh, no, he was keeping it. He was living a double life. Okay. He was keeping it secret, which is why he was had these big, long absences is because he was seeing other women or taking trips or doing things with them. So he was lying. I mean, it was an upright lie. And that, what happened was, is on our honeymoon, believe it or not, we took a delayed honeymoon two months into the marriage. And on the honeymoon, I saw him texting another woman, saw him sending photos. Uh, he was watching porn. I caught him watching. It was on our honeymoon night. Instead of having sex, he's watching yeah. porn and he's texting another woman. Yeah. And then at the last night of the honeymoon, which I confronted him about that, we had a big fight, but then we worked it out. And I thought, oh, we're on the same page. But the last night of the honeymoon, a woman contacted me and said, oh, you're married to so-and-so. I guess this is what she literally wrote. I guess the joke's not just on me. It's on you too, which now I'm realizing was really a hostile thing to say. Yeah. There's no joke. I mean, he's my fucking husband. There's, I'm not in a joke, but she's obviously was angry. But she let me know that they had been dating and fucking for the past three months. Hmm. Wow. And she identified personal items of mine, said, is this yours? I saw this. You know, he gave me this. It did it belong to you. Those. T- so she proved that she knew him and she'd yeah. seen our, my stuff. So I confronted him. And then at that point, his next story was, well, I thought I've had a sex addiction my whole life and nobody's cared and nobody's tried to get help. My ex-wives, he had more than one, thought that I was just making it up. So that became the new story. And whenever something was wrong, he was like, well, I'm a sex addict and I can't help myself. You're going to have to figure out if you can live with it or not. (laughs) Which I do think, just to be fair, I do think he does struggle with sexual addiction. I do think it's a real thing. I know that's controversial. But I also know he's a narcissist. He's a narcissistic sociopath who believes he has a right to do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. The rules don't apply to me, but in his mind, he has, that's his right. So yeah, I think yeah. it's both and he, yeah, he had a problem. He was using sex as a way to kind of deal with stress, but he also believed he was entitled to it. Yeah. And did you think that he used that to make himself the victim in this situation? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've yeah, created a backstory, you know, created yeah. like, a, oh, he can't help himself. Poor guy. Instead of ignoring the fact that he's devastating me and it's, yeah. Yeah. I haven't actually found a good resource about this about the narcissist playing the victim. And I've searched a bit, not as much as I would like to, but I I see that come up in a lot of my clients. It's typically with my clients that have like, that are a bit old, like they're a bit older. They're not in their twenties and thirties. They might be in like their forties and fifties. And so can you explain just what, like how a narcissist would play the victim? 
Sure. Well, I think it fits back into how I was describing that there's two in my, if we just for a moment, sort of rudimentary, describe the world into two terms, Mm -hmm. collaborative and competitive. So let's look at a competitive mindset. By the way, if you go to the DSM-5, you'll see that it says that one of their core problems is envy. And that if you think about envy, envy is about competition. It says, you have what I want, but there's where your victim is, by the way, that it's in the DSM-5 under envy. You have a good life. You've got something I think that I deserve or that you don't deserve. And I think it's unfair that you have it. And I'm mad at you and I don't like you. And I see you as the enemy for the fact that life has been better to you than it has to be has been to me. So when you see the world competitively like that with winners and losers, and that there it's a zero-sum gain, then you're going to view everything as somehow, how did they get that and I didn't get that? You shouldn't have that. Or the fact that I don't have it then is an unfairness to me and life didn't apply the same rules it should to me that it does to you. It just, it puts everything in a really weird way and with where there's winners and then there's losers. And if you're a loser, you're a victim. But it's a really great way to shore up a shaky self-esteem. It's not mm-hmm. my fault. I didn't do that. I mean, I can't help myself. Or it also is a great way to, to appeal to people's sympathy, empathy, and, and pity, you know, to where we then feel sorry for them or we overlook the stuff or we then don't abandon them faster because we claim they can't help themselves. We try to stay and rescue them longer because we don't see them as free agents who's made that choice. Yeah. Or like that, I know that in my case, he didn't say it to me, but he said to his mother that like he was going to, he was like felt suicidal. There's no accountability because you can just keep upping the victimhood to just avoid any accountability. And I remember being shocked when that came up. I was like, in my time with him, I've never seen that. I don't want to ever say that somebody's not suicidal, but I do feel like he's saying this to get you up his back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so please yeah. stop panicking, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. Now I'm not saying they won't actually do it either. Yeah. They may. But here's the hard part for all of us is we're not actually responsible for other people's feelings. Yeah, it is great when we can intercede and intervene and jump in and save them from stuff. But here's the question that many victims get put in and those who do this are quick to put victims into. And that is to say the predator or the offender or the abuser or the entitled one, whatever, or the toxic one, whatever word you want to use, sees their needs and their rights as more important and more pertinent than you. In fact, you don't even show up. So they'll say to you, you should save me. It is your job to save me. And you're cruel and mean for not without realizing the consequence and the cost to the person who's being asked to constantly show up, whose their needs are not being seen and cared for. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually essentially being asked to sacrifice ourselves for the good of another person. Now, we do that as parents with children, young children, but we shouldn't do that for adults. That's not actual real autonomy or maturation. Yeah. I know that we're short on time. So I want to end with this question. And I, this is a complex one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you leave a relationship like this, so many people want to understand what just happened. And, you know, in listening to you today, and I actually haven't read your book, but I did order it off of Amazon. I hope to read it at the, I'm off the end of the month and I hope to read it then. Oh, we want to understand what happened. And there's been a few times in here I've asked you, like, did you know that then? Did you know that then? You know, did you see it at this point? And you've said no. And I know if somebody asked me that, I would have said no. I said no. In hindsight, I did. I do. And I do now. And I did not then. But so many of us want to take responsibility for the roles that we've had in it. 
to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so why do you think it's so important in healing to understand what happened? I think we all become experts of narcissistic abuse, you know, and then to really prevent it from ever happening again. Yeah, yeah. Sandra Brown said in her webinar in November, just a couple of weeks ago, she said that we don't do our children justice when we don't teach them that there are predatory people in the world. And she said roughly, in her opinion, and she spent years working with psychopaths and sociopaths that 20% of the world are not safe. Mm. 20% of the world is not safe to the rest of the world. We don't teach our children. We don't, we don't as a culture, as a society, say not everybody comes into a relationship with good motives. So what happened was you met somebody like that and you didn't know that they existed and you assumed the best. You assumed that this person was as well-meaning as you were when you got into the relationship. So for me, and you're right, I didn't recognize what, I mean, I knew it was going wrong and I knew he had betrayed me and I knew he was responsible for the betrayal. I knew he wasn't committing himself. In fact, there was a point in the relationship where I said to him, I said, it's like we're playing the hokey pokey. And of course, he's from another culture, so he didn't know the game. And I said, it's where you stand in a circle and you put one arm in and you put the other arm out. And then you put a leg in and you put your leg in out. I said, there comes a point in the song where you put your whole self in. I said, when it comes to that, you never do it. Yeah. And I've been doing it all along. So what I've come to realize and I is how I've made sense is that there are people, some people who don't know how to do that and will never do that. And it is up to me to learn to recognize them so that I don't overcommit myself to somebody who has that deficit. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree. It really, I think I wish we all knew ahead of time, because if I knew ahead of time, I would have run. Yeah. We don't yeah, know. A lot of times we don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. And now that I'm more aware of it, I watch for signs of it. And then I'm faster to like say, no, I'm not really interested. But I had, here's the thing I would be curious to know about you. I had to re- assess my whole social circle. And I found out that my social circle wasn't any safer either, that I had gotten into a habit of sort of unfortunately collecting toxic relationships. I'm glad that you say that because that's something I've like grappled with for probably all of the fall, to be honest. Like my life kind of went, not that it got into it like into a shit show bad, but just my kid entered kindergarten and it changed a lot of the dynamic. Like the transition from preschool to kindergarten has been a lot. Her dad, he doesn't live in the same state as we do. So everything is on me. I don't have family around. And I just felt like as I started to heal from the abuse and really like take care of my shit, I always took care of all those things, but it was like, and then I wouldn't go overextend. Like then I would listen, oh my God, I'm so tired. I need sleep then. And friends just sort of, a lot of them fell away because I wasn't people pleasing them anymore, or I wasn't agreeing to things that I just didn't really want to do. And the friends that have stayed close, which are very few right now, are the ones that understand that I'm a single mom and that my kid comes first. They understand that my bandwidth might not always be that large because of the work I do and where I show up. Like I do need to have those boundaries and that they meet me where I am or they meet me halfway or they understand I might have to cancel. Like it's been really hard because it's like trying to live in a different world sometimes of like, and I feel sometimes I don't fit in this world. When I met my current partner, I thought he was love bombing me. And I said that I was like, this totally feels like you're love bombing me. He's like, no, I just have liked you for a long time. Like still feels like you're love bombing me. But you know, I chose to just go extremely slow, but also tell him like, this is what my life looks like now. I don't hang out with a lot of friends because my daughter is six. She is going through the, she, she is smart enough to know that she is a single mom and what that means, you know, and that brings up a lot of stuff for her. And that is my priority. But also, 
I don't have the capacity to go out at 8 p.m. on a Friday after I've been all through this, but I would say not one person understands that. Yeah, I realized that my sweetness mm-hmm. and niceness was too accommodating. I didn't realize this. I didn't mean to. To me, I just thought I was being really great, was sending the message that my needs didn't really matter and mm-hmm. wasn't on the same par as everybody else. So once I started expecting people to show up in the same kind of way, yeah, it changed the dynamics and then changed the amount of people in my life. But I also then actively just assessed who really sees me and who do I start to feel careful around or I can't fully show up as myself or I can't be free to say certain things. And I just I just got rid of those relationships. I realized yeah, that- Yeah, and who am I second work. guessing? Like, am exactly. I sending a message? Am I defending myself? Am I rethinking how I word this text? Am I like practicing my safe communication skills? It's like, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, like, what is bringing that out of me? Because those people, I can't do this with anymore. Right, right, yeah. right. I had to take more chances. I've, I've found that now what I do, I have adult sons. I now say what I feel and I let them know when they hurt my feelings. And I, I'm practicing really showing up and being more courageous around some of this stuff. For me, it was very like you. I have a history that's similar in the sense of I have had a lot of experience with making sure I keep people happy and making yeah. sure that I don't end up in the doghouse emotionally because of the way the dynamics are. So that's kept myself small. So I'm learning how to show up safely. So it's been a process for me. It's been a lot of learning. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one friend once said to me, and this is a friend that like is a close friend still. And we have, I've actually had to confront him about making fun of me. I know that you're doing it from a place of playfulness, but this is what it does to me. You know, we've had to have that conversation. But he said to me once, he goes, you know, once you noticed abuse in a relationship, you're seeing it everywhere, like as if it was a bad thing. And I was like, yeah, I know. I know it sucks. Like, it's really hard to see it everywhere. And I just told myself, like, maybe he's not going to get this part of it for me. But this part of it is actually really important for me to notice that there's abuse in all these other places, too. And I don't want to experience in all these places, like even in the gym I was going to, like, I was like, I don't want to be a part of these things anymore. And I need to because it was so triggering. Right. Yeah. Right. Dr. David Snarf, he's no longer alive, but he wrote a book called The Passionate Marriage. It's really actually about how to have great sex. That's the point Mm. of the book. And in the first part of it, he talks about differentiation, that how we are like cells and that when we first are born, we don't have a full sense of self. We begin to develop kind of our individuality as we get older. But there comes a point where in a lot of relationships, we still emotionally borrow from other people. We don't like handle our own anxieties and our own insecurities and shakiness. Instead, we look for other people to shore us up and make us feel better. A great example that women do a lot is we try a new dress on. Maybe we're feeling insecure. Maybe it's been the holidays and we say, does this make me look fat? Mm-hmm. And when we're saying that, we're in, in that moment saying, I don't feel good about myself. I don't know how to soothe myself. I'm now asking you to do the job that I can't do for myself. That in that moment is emotionally borrowing from someone else. Mm -hmm. Toxic relationships are riddled with that. When you really think about it, if you stand back, all of it, all of it is a defensive way of saying, I can't manage my own needs, my own emotions. So I make another person responsible to the point that I say that they don't matter. Their needs don't matter because I'm so needy that I'm going to then borrow everything from that person as much as I can and then shame them for failing to show up for me. So I see it as on a continuum and I'm really trying to surround myself as well as do with myself, be more responsible for my uncomfortableness, my own insecurity, and find ways to shore myself up and not expect somebody else to do that for me. And in the same time, I don't want to do it for someone else. Right, right. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today. This was such an informative conversation. I know we talked about that we really got right into like the depths of the nastiness of this, but I really appreciate you being here. Um, I I hope you'll come back because I I think there's so much more. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much, Jessica. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm.